Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. First, a couple of pieces of podcast news. Number one, I've launched an email newsletter to accompany the show each week. It's got a bunch of background stuff about each week's guest and the recording process. It has some Amarillo news in it and some personal stuff from me. I think you'll enjoy it. I enjoy putting it together. Uh, you can sign up for that at bit.ly slash hey newsletter. That's B-I-T dot L-Y hey newsletter. Number two, we just announced the second annual Hey Amarillo Beer Festival. We did this event last year. This year's event is June 20th at Starlight Ranch, and it will feature live music, beer tasting from a bunch of local breweries, and from Texas craft beer lines, and a whole lot more. You can get tickets for that at bit.ly slash beerfest2020. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash beerfest2020. Number three, the Amarillo Women's Collaborative is this Sunday, March 8th, and I hope you'll go. More about that a little bit later. Today's guest is Jim Livingston. Now, most people around here probably know Jim as a fine art photographer who specializes in West Texas landscapes or as a portrait artist behind the I Am Route 66 series and the I Am Route 66 Visitor Center and Gallery on 6th Street. And I mean, that's how you should know him. But all that stuff is just the past 10 years of Jim's life because before that, he was a Jesuit priest and a social worker. And he worked in the legal profession. You don't see resumes like his very often. And I love this episode because Jim and I get to cover so much ground in it. Here's Jim Livingston. Jim Livingston, welcome to the Amarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, Amarillo. Thanks for having me here. Well, Jim, I I know that you have a fascinating story. You're you're in the middle of, of like a second or third career that was necessitated by you know, sort of some reinvention and moving to a new area and a lot of complicated stuff. And I know we can't get into all of that. Uh, so instead of asking you how you ended up in Amarillo, I, I want to just kind of hear about where you grew up in the first place. Like, like what was the, the early part of your life like? Sure. Um, I'm the youngest of uh, six kids. And okay. my mom and dad were uh, deeply Catholic. And so I grew up going to Catholic school and Catholic high school and graduated from Catholic school. I actually was uh, was a Jesuit for a while. Wow. Where um, were you born? I was actually born in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Um, I joked that my dad came to Texas just as fast as he possibly could. Um, my dad worked for AMP that was a grocery chain, and they went bankrupt. And he got a job with Benny Keith in Wichita Falls. Okay. And kind of a funny story about that, my dad, I can remember being under the kitchen table, like seven or eight years old, and my mom and dad talking about Texas, and I'm thinking, oh man, cowboys and Indians, and you know, all that stuff that the the stereotype of Texas, right? And my dad, they were going to help him with the down payment on the house and the move, the Benny Keith was, and uh, he had a choice of Grapevine or Wichita Falls. And I I can hear his voice, Peggy... Grapevine is out in the middle of nowhere. It'll never have any property value whatsoever. We need to go to Wichita Falls. Uh, famous last words. Famous last right? words for right. sure. Yeah. So that's how we ended up in Wichita Falls. Which was Falls. the case, though, at that point. Oh, my I gosh. Mean, yeah. I remember driving through Grapevine, and it was this dinky little town, mm-hmm. you know, miles outside of anywhere. But, so uh, Wichita Falls, you um, you thought about being a Jes- Jesuit, or was, you actually, actually were? I was a Jesuit. Wow. Yeah. So how long? The whole process was about seven years. Okay. Was that something that was like a... Um, a path that that was attractive to you, like even from childhood. I mean, were you? Did you um, see yourself going that direction for a long time? 
You know, I really didn't until I got into high school. Okay. And uh, I've always been somebody who enjoyed helping people. I've always been somebody who, you know, is interested in spirituality and stuff like that. Um, actually, out of high school, I studied to be a pilot. I worked at a local airport, and I wanted to be a corporate pilot. And so I was a lineman, pulled airplanes, fueled them, and stuff like that. Okay. And um, part-time, what I'd do is I'd wash an airplane for a lesson. So the local flight school, you know, that's how I traded out to mm-hmm. actually learn how to fly. And in that year, started getting involved in church and decided that I actually wanted to go to the seminary and see what it was all about. Okay. And so did you actually go through mm-hmm. uh, the seminary process and yeah. all of that? Yeah. What was the impact of that? Like, like where did you end up for the, uh, the year or two after that? Um, I did a lot of work in the Northwest. Um, worked a lot on Native American reservations. Okay. That's really where I felt the most comfortable. You know, I guess my dad is a very outdoorsy guy, and so I, I feel more comfortable in rural settings than I do in cities. Actually, Amarillo is too big of a city for okay. me. I mean, I feel there's way too much concrete here for my, my taste. But I do love Amarillo, or I wouldn't have stayed here for as long as yeah, I Yeah, exactly. You know, and it was a it was a wonderful thing. Part of what happened was the Catholic Church during that time began to the the light began to shed on the pedophile issues, right? And I feel like this was like was this the eighties when yeah. some of that reporting started to come yeah. out? Okay. And rather than deal with it like it like it should have been done, which was just complete transparency and openness, you know, the Catholic Church chose a rather dark path, mm-hmm. and I really had a hard time with that. Okay. And I felt like the the that the leadership were not being true to their calling. And so then, as I understand, you found your way into social work. Yeah. From yeah. that, so uh, maybe a natural transition from yeah. helping people in one sense to helping people in, a, in exactly. another sense. Yeah, exactly. So I, I came home. I already had my master's degree in divinity, but I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to do any of that stuff, and so I went to MSU, Midwestern State University, in um, Wichita in Wichita Falls. Falls. Wichita yeah. Falls, and I married my uh, statistics professor. Oh, okay. So. I guess that's the uh, tried and true story. Yeah, boy yeah. meets statistics professor. My professor, that's the only class I've ever failed. By the way, okay, uh, I didn't actually fail. I made a D in it, but I may have been a little distracted. Ah, understandable. Yeah. Um, what kind of social work did you do? Most of my social work with was chronically and severe mental mental ill. So I worked a lot with schizophrenia, bipolar. Or uh, people whose depression was so de- severe that they were at risk of hospitalization. Okay. Was that, um, I mean, t- to me from the outside, that sounds like a very challenging career, emotionally, spiritually. Was it something that you feel like you were really equipped to do? Uh, yes and no. Dealing with the clients uh, was very challenging, but mostly in a good way. Um, you know, I saw a lot of victories with the clients. These are people, uh, and we all have mental health problems. That's the thing. You know, it's not like an us or them thing. All of us deal with depression. All of us deal with whatever issues. And that's one of the things that I began to realize is that that person with schizophrenia really isn't much different than I am. They hmm. just, you know, they're, they're struggling a little differently than I am. But the thing that killed me was the system. Hmm. It is not very well designed to deal with people who are chronically ill and need medical attention, things like that. Okay. And so dealing with the clients was not that hard. I mean, and I was well-trained and all that other stuff. Dealing with the system was insane, and it still is insane. I mean, it's a bureaucracy that just is not adequately funded or anything like that. In terms of system, were you working like in the healthcare system or government? Most of the time I work for the state of Texas. Okay, state of Texas. Yeah. Um, So... That was a career, though, that you did for a number of years. Yeah, yeah several years. And I, I know that um, 
you know, this, this is the funny thing about talking to you. Uh, I know you as a photographer, but already you've been a Jesuit and a pilot and social worker. And we haven't even gotten to the photography part yet. And I know that there was, you know, sort of a uh, a part that for a lot of legal purposes that we have to skip past um, in your life, which is worth a podcast in itself. But uh, yeah, I've got to stick to your wishes on that one. Um, a fascinating story. But what ended up happening is that you burned out on social work, mm-hmm. you burned out on legal work, and the circumstances of your life sort of forced a reinvention. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and in fact, a, a pretty quick reinvention where you just kind of had to give everything up and, yeah, yeah. and change I, how uh, you lived. Um, through really no fault of my own, I ended up with uh, losing my house and my possessions. And I had, uh, I was involved in a legal case as a witness, and I had about a nine-month time period in my life where I was just on hold. And so during that time period, I drove around the United States and uh, r- just buried myself in my camera. I've loved photography since I was 14. Okay. And, you know, photography is just an amazing thing because when you're looking through that viewfinder, the world is really what you focus on, you know. Anyway, so during that uh, nine months where I was technically homeless, and I really wasn't homeless. You know, when I, when I say that, when I'm homeless, people imagine me standing on the side of the corner with right. a little sign that says, you know, food, please. You know, I had my car and I had clothes and I had tons of friends who offered me their couch. And, you know, I did a ton of couch surfing because I've got friends all over the United States. Um, so I wasn't homeless in the sense that I had to sleep out on the street or anything like that. I just didn't have a place. And mm-hmm. I'd lost most of my possessions. M- most everything that I owned fit in my Jeep during that time. Wow. And this was what? What year? Uh, 2011 to 2012. Okay. So I drove around the United States and I went to state parks. I went to national parks and I buried myself in photography. I mean, that became my entire life. So, you know, talking about the burnout, a lot of times people assume that the burnout was the clients and it wasn't. It was the system. It hmm. was trying to wrestle with the system to find help for people. Um, the legal world was kind of the same way. I had come to be extremely jaded into see America as a very unfair, unjust place. Um, I had experienced the darker part of the, of the United States. And again, not in my clients, not in their problems, right. but that our system is so broken medically and I needed to reframe things. And so as um, I tell this story, a lot of times, one of the first things that happened during that time period was I ended up on a hill south of Childress. And to the south of me was this amazing thunderhead. I mean, you know, it was just it was one of those thunderheads yeah. that's just, and it was right at sunset to where the, the, the colors were just, it was a perfect Texas sunset. Yeah. You know, this giant thunderhead and, you know, the perfect colors and the smell of the sage. And I mean, it was just a perfect moment. And I started taking pictures and I knew how to take a good picture, but, you know, the horizon was crooked or it was blurry. Or right. My depth of field was off. 30 pictures that were lousy of a perfect subject, right? And I realized what was going on. I know how to take a picture. And I realized I was so caught up in worrying about how I was going to eat, where I was going to sleep, um, real serious issues yeah. at that point because I'm living out of my car. But I was also thinking about this legal case that I had just been involved in and wondering, well, what would have happened if I'd have done this? And should I have done this? And, you know, I was all wrapped up in these questions of what if and coulda and shouldas. I was everywhere except for standing on that hill in Childress looking at that amazing sunset. Okay. And the reality was is not there was nothing I could do about the future. There was nothing I could do about the past. But what I did have was that moment. And yeah. one of the one of the most profound realizations about art hit me at that moment. 
is that to make good art, you have to be present to the moment. All right. And so I sat there and I kind of breathed and I let all that stuff about the future go and I let all that stuff about the past go. And then the very next picture was one of the very first pictures that got published. Okay. Did you have a classically trained background in photography or had it always just sort of been this, this hobby for you before um, you got to that period? Yes and no. Uh, so <laughs> talk about careers. Um, as a Jesuit, uh, that was that was where I was heading was towards uh, photography. And so I had a lot of um, real serious training with a camera. So I knew how to do photography okay. in film. I had traveled all over the place and I was a very good photographer. But when I left the Jesuits and I, um, my mom and dad are the kind of people that artists aren't real serious. You know, you gotta be a, you gotta be a lawyer or you gotta be a mechanic or you Mm -hmm. gotta, you know, an artist, they're flaky and you know, you don't want to, you know, and maybe a photographer, like a wedding photographer or something like that, but not a fine art photographer. What's wrong with you? You don't want to do that. You'll starve to death. Right. So I'm not, I'm not great at shooting people, which is funny because this project that I'm doing is all about taking pictures of people. But I didn't really ever consider photography as a legitimate career choice, art, or being a fine art photographer. Right. And so that's the reason why I got into the into social work. But I was well-trained as a photographer. Okay. So when I went back to photography, I had no problem taking the photographs. The mechanics of a digital camera are not that much different than a film camera. I was lost with the digital world. Yeah. I hadn't touched a camera since my Pentax K1000, you know, in film. And so... Um, during that nine months, I realized that the world had changed so much since I'd done photography that if I wanted to pursue photography seriously, that I had to get up to speed. And so I chose to come to Amarillo. And the reason I chose to come to Amarillo is Amarillo College. They okay. have an amazing photography program. Yeah, they have amazing teachers. So of all of my secondary education, Amarillo College is absolutely my favorite. In fact, I usually don't even tell people that I have a master's degree. Usually what I tell them is I got my certificate of photography from Amarillo yeah. College because that's what I'm proud of. That's the one school that I'm genuinely enamored with and proud of and you know, I'm very proud to tell people that I went to When did with. you graduate from AC? Um, well, or attend? I mean, what were the years there? Uh, 2013 to about 2016. So I was a slow learner. You know, their uh, certificate program is like a year and a half, and it took me three years. Okay. How did AC get on your radar or Amarillo? Well, um, actually, crazy enough, I've got friends up here. So, you know, Wichita Falls, I had a buddy of mine who I graduated with who went to Bell Helicopter, worked for Bell Helicopter. So I'd come up here and visit with him. Just a couple of different friends who live up here. And so I'd be up here and I'd see the billboards or whatever. And really and truly, it was about Google. I mean, it was kind of like, where's a good photography program? And then I said to Amarillo and I had friends up here. So, and so, uh, you know, Amarillo college is known for its non-traditional students. Yeah. You know, you can go to a classroom and you might be among a bunch of 20 year olds and there might be a 60 or a 70 yeah. year old or somebody like that. And you're, you're, I guess the ideal of that non-traditional student, somebody from, you know, a past career or a couple of careers who's learning something brand new. Right. What was your experience like that? I mean, did beyond just the, stuff you were learning, the culture of the college or the instructors that you had, the other students. I mean, what was that like for you as someone who is coming to it with a lot of experience? Yeah. Well, and a lot of experience at school, you know, I mean, master's degree. The teachers that I had at Amarillo College were phenomenal. Uh, And largely, you know, when you're in the university system and you're getting your master's degree, it's very academic. And a lot of times it's way removed from the real world. Right. You know? The coolest thing about Amarillo College was like 
I had Pete Gonzalez, who was my uh, graphics instructor. And mm-hmm. Pete, you know, not only was he teaching me how to use Illustrator or, or Photoshop, but he would be talking about, okay, now your clients, they want this. So Pete was talking to me about real world experience right. as opposed to this academic kind of stuff. And the other teachers were the same thing. You know, Brent Cavanaugh, he's uh, the head of the photography department, and he actually is an architectural photographer. So he does work here in town mm-hmm. as a working photographer. So not only could he tell me all the wonderful stuff academically about photography, but he could also tell me, okay, now when you get into the real world of photography and you got clients, this is what you're going to deal yeah, with. Yeah, you don't have that ivory tower sort of yeah. aspect there. You attend AC, uh, you learn how to um, use a digital camera, plus, you know, Photoshop and all the the stuff that goes along with that. That's something that a lot of people can do, but actually becoming a working fine art photographer, you know, is another step and, right. and one that people are not always successful at. So tell me a little bit about where you ended up, you know, where you are today and, and some of the ways that you were able to turn that education into a career, something that sustains you? Well, I get real regularly, I'll have uh, other photographers who love landscape photography or whatever. Um, I get the question all the time. They ask me, should they pursue a career in fine art photography? Mm -hmm. You know, part of it is they want to know if their photography is good enough. That's the wrong question because being an artist is about practice. Yeah. If this picture is not good enough, all you got to do is take another 10 million and you're going to be good enough. Right. right? And um, I kind of joke about that, but that's, kind of how I became good was millions of photographs. And I'm not even joking about millions of photographs. The real question that I think somebody is asking when they're thinking about a career in art, whether it's fine art photography or art is, um, you know, is that something that they can make a living out of? And my answer is a pat answer is if you can do anything other than art, that's what you need to do. Yeah. Because if, if art's not something that you're going to wake up And even if you're not going to get a paycheck, you're going to create it because you are compelled. There's something inside of you that drives you. That's when you need to pursue a career in in art is when you can't do anything other than art, when it just comes out of you regardless. You're going to do it whether you get paid or not. Right. One of the things I hear about art that I hear from my fellow artists all the time is they write because they're starving. You know, there's a major difference between making art and selling art. And so, um, one of the best skills for an artist to learn is marketing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I'll see a photographer pick up a camera and they're really good, but then they lay it down because they're having financial problems. If they can lay it down, they need to go do that other job. Yeah. Is that inability to put it down that, that drives somebody yeah. to be successful. So, you know, man, from 2013 to today, I am not exaggerating at all that I have literally taken millions of photographs. I have 20 terabytes of external hard drives. That's 20, a lot. 20 terabytes of external hard drives. It's about like 3.5 million photographs. Um, a lot of that was time lapses. I really love doing time lapses, and, I th- and I, that allows me to catch parts of a scene that, you know, like if I'm doing a sunset, I can capture that perfect, perfect moment because I'm doing the series of photographs of the right. sunset. You've got every one of those moments. Exactly. Um, and so that 3 million photographs is a little bit of an exaggeration because there's a lot of time lapses in there. And there might be 700 photographs in each time lapse. But, yeah, if if art is something that you're not compelled to do, if art is something that – and you as an author – 
you couldn't not write. I know that about you. You, you know, I mean, that's just something that is who you are. It's like breathing for you, right? Yeah. So, and that's what I tell people all the time. And that's how I was. Part of that, I think, came from the psychological need to reframe the world. Mm-hmm. I really needed to look through the viewfinder. To have some control over that. Well, and to actually see the beautiful parts. Okay. Um, the beautiful thing about that viewfinder is you can have this beautiful park with flowers and all this other stuff, and you got this one section that's got trash. Well, you've got a control over what part of that scene that you focus on. And what I had to learn was that psychologically I have that same control. Okay. And I did that through my viewfinder. Okay. Tell me about the market for your photographs, um, because I know a lot of it has been, you know, landscapes, the the West, places that are familiar to us in Amarillo. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that continues to be of interest to people who are looking for fine art photography? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, ironically, my biggest clientele are um, commercial uh, decorating offices, wow. decorating okay. doctor's offices. Um, we've decorated about, I say we, you know, the folks at the gallery that I work with. So I've got, it's not just me anymore. I'm a terrible businessman. So I had to actually, you know, get in partnership get with professionals somebody. there. Yeah. You know, we've decorated about 55 businesses here in Amarillo. Wow. And it's okay. really cool to walk into like the urology clinic, the, the photographs in the urology clinic are mine. So it's really cool to walk in there and, you know, you're surrounded by your, your work or someplace like that. Yeah. So I know that uh, in addition to the landscape photography, you and, and the gallery, you've, you've also started this I Am project for mm-hmm. the last couple of years, which I, I imagine is one of the ways if people don't know you from stuff that's hanging, you know, in, in a urology clinic, um, they've seen your social media posts or yeah. they've seen some of this work. Uh, so tell me how that developed and, and sort of what that has become for you. Well, I was at the 806 Coffee Shop, which is one of the coolest little places in Amarillo, if you ask me. And I was sitting there. They'd asked me to do an art show. Um, and I think they were thinking that I was going to do my landscape photography or mm-hmm. something like that. And I'm sitting there. And the coolest thing about the 806 is you might be sitting there and there's a there's a biker sitting there. Right. There's a soccer mom from Minnesota, you know, there's an artist sitting there with tattoos all over his hands. And then there's a homeless guy and you're sitting and I was sitting there and I was looking at that and I was like, wow, where else in Amarillo, where else in America would you see this eclectic group of people? Yeah. I didn't realize at the time that part of the reason for that is not just the 806. It's the fact that the 806 is on Route 66 and you have tourists stopping. So you have the biker who's driving Route 66 stopping to get a cup of coffee. You have the banker who's on vacation driving down Route 66 stopping. So I decided that I wanted to show off that eclectic group of people. And I learned a really valuable lesson. So I'd literally walk up to somebody and say, hey, I'm a photographer. I'm going to do an art show, and I'd really love to get your portrait in the art show. Problem is, is I don't care how interesting that person looked. If there's not something that connects you as the viewer to that person, they're a stranger. And it's not as interesting. So I kept trying to figure out how could I connect the viewer to the person in the portrait. And finally, I came upon those three questions. Okay. And um, so I have them answer in their own handwriting, although that's actually going to change. With the book coming out, what we've discovered is when you shrink those down to big enough in a book, um, like my handwriting, people ask me if I'm writing in Swahili. You know, it's like, is that English? So um, we're actually typing a lot of the answers out so that it's easier to read. But there is something to be said, like in the art exhibits that I've done. So I've done several art exhibits with these portraits. 
um, there is something that I think some part of that person's character comes through in their handwriting. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So what's happening is the museum exhibitions, I'm leaving the, the larger pictures where it's easier to actually kind of read out. Those are actually still going to remain in the person's handwriting. Right. But the book, they're going to be there. And man, that's a long process typing all of those 1,500 right. answers into, or actually, and trying to translate. That was the, really the thing that convinced me was when I actually started to write, to type those answers, it's like, hmm. Not what sure what they word? really said. Yeah, you know. So I, I know that you, you, you've talked about the, the handwriting and, and the pictures of the people and the diversity of the people that you've been able to photograph. Tell me, I mean, is, is there something you can say that you've maybe learned about people in the process or that, you know, this, this project has shown you about some of the people who oh, either passed down gosh. Route 66 or come through Amarillo or who you've encountered, you know, as you travel? One of the things that's happening with this book that I'm writing is there's a lot of interesting stories and a lot of things that dawned on me. So one of the interesting things, obviously, having been a minister and stuff like that, I come from a very Christian background. One of the persons, after the shoot, he came up to me and he said, man, I really wanted to answer. I'm an atheist. Okay. But my mom and my family would give me so much grief that I didn't. And he's like, I, I, I couldn't. I was afraid to. And I thought, wow, that's really a shame, you know? And um, like 15 minutes later, this lawyer comes up to me and she said, I really wanted to answer. I am a Christian, but the people at my law firm, I mean, we defend some pretty shady deals and, you know, they would give me grief over that. And I was really afraid to answer that. Hmm. And I thought to myself, holy cow, you know, if this person who's an atheist and this person who's a Christian are both terrified to answer. Right. Their faith experience is very different, but their experience of being free to express that is the same. And maybe if they actually talked, they would find out that they had all these things in common that they don't think that they have in common. And with the project, I mean, it's a project about identity. You're asking people to say, I am this. Right. And neither one of them felt free. Comfortable enough to actually. You know, to really reveal who they really were. Exactly. So in the the second question is, I am I regret. The number one answer for I regret is I regret nothing. Hmm. And man, I could write That's a book on regrets. I have screwed up and, you know, I've screwed up in all kinds of ways, right? So I could write this whole book on regrets. And so I started asking people, what does it mean? How can you yeah. say you got no regrets? And really and truly that boils down to two things. One is I regret nothing that I am going to put in public because okay. it ain't nobody's business but mine. Um, the other side of that, though, um, there was this lady that I took a photograph of. She was four foot eleven. I mean, tiny, tiny, okay. tiny little lady. Her husband went to Iraq. Great guy. Came back from Iraq, messed up bad. I mean, you know, seventeen hour day missions, forty days, you know, without rest. He came back with really bad PTSD, and he would wake up in the middle of the night and just beat the tar out of her. Wow. But he didn't know it was her. I mean, he was in the middle of a flashback and all kinds of stuff. He was a police officer. She tried to get help, and she couldn't get help. One of the problems, I mean, that, that is a legitimate problem yeah. at times. Yeah. So she ends up um, getting involved with an agency that basically snatched her up, moved her across the country, changed her name, gave her a new identity, and a fresh start. Okay. And she is four foot 11. She is a black belt and some kind of taekwondo or something like that you know she could probably touch you and break your arm i have no doubt about that <laughs> um she teaches um uh, concealed weapon classes she teaches uh, verbal defense classes for women to diffuse situations verbally before they accelerate so her whole life is dealing with 
women and domestic violence. And she told me, she goes, man, I was the mousiest human being in the world. I was afraid of my shadow. And she's like, now I'm not afraid of nothing. I don't regret what happened. I regret the pain. I regret all of that, the stuff that was painful about it. And I regret that he had to go through war and that we couldn't work it all out. But it made me who I am. Hmm. And I love who I am. And so the other side of that is I regret nothing because even though it was tough, it brought me to where I am. You've decided, you know, to to base this project, to, to base your work here in Amarillo. You know, and, and, and you're not attending AC anymore, so that's not tied you here. What what has made you stay here, you know, after having lived in so many different places, after having a choice? I mean, you could live anywhere and do landscape photography. So. Sure, sure. And actually, I love the Panhandle. But sometimes it's challenging to go out and get a good landscape picture. You know what I'm sure. saying? I mean, uh, Palo, we have Palo Canyon, but I have tens of thousands of photographs of Palo Canyon. Um, Colorado is real easy. All you got to do is turn around and there's a mountain. Yeah. You know? What's kept me here are the people, honestly. Uh, I do love Palo Canyon. I adore Palo Canyon. I love the lands. I love the high plains. I love the fact that I can storm chase without running into a mountain or a tree, mm-hmm. and I can take pictures of the amazing skies. Uh, Nothing's the, hiding those thunderheads right yeah, here. Yeah, you know that old joke that the only thing between me and the North Pole is a couple of strands of barbed wire fence? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the way it is. And so um, being somebody who's in love with the sky, and I think if you look at that body of 3.5 million photographs, the largest collection of them are about the sky. So that's a big part. The landscape for me is not the landscape, it's the sky. And we have some of the most phenomenal skies in all of America here. But it's also the people. Yeah. Um, Man, we've got some of the most amazing people, kind, generous, um, some of the most artsy people, some of the most fascinating people that I've ever met. And to me, you know, knowing your story as as one of reinvention um, and uprooting your life, it it feels like maybe a natural place for you to land, you know, Mm -hmm. a, a place where... We've had, you know, a century of, of pioneers and people just kind of starting over, you know, in a, in a new place um, that maybe feels a little bit like your story. Mm-hmm. This episode is sponsored by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist for at least 25 years, and he's my kid's dentist, too. He's an expert on Invisalign, using that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning. He's got my son, Owen in Invisalign braces right now, and Owen very much prefers those to the traditional metal brackets. They look better, they feel better, they don't cut his mouth up in rough basketball games. All of that's important. So to learn more, visit shimandental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Also, this Sunday, March 8th, is the Amarillo Women's Collaborative. This is a celebration of women-owned businesses in this community. From 1 to 7 p.m. on Sunday, this free event brings together local businesses, female entrepreneurs, and area organizations that provide services to the women living here. It's at the Big Gray Warehouse downtown at 509 South Grant, a couple of blocks east of the Civic Center. Look, Texas is a great state for women to start a business. And of course, they make up nearly half of the Texas workforce. Companies run by women are more likely to draw investors to our city. But women who are full-time wage and salary workers only earn 80% of what their male counterparts earn, which honestly is stupid. So this event is a platform to celebrate the women-owned businesses that are so vital to Amarillo's success. 
Check out the Amarillo Women's Collaborative on Facebook, and hopefully I'll see you there on Sunday. Okay, I'm back with Jim Livingston. Jim, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, you get to answer those. And the first one is is not one that I've asked uh, any other guests, I don't believe. But I, I wanted to ask you because I know you're so in tune with all the, the local places, you know, to shoot landscape photos. So what's your favorite local place to photograph? I have a problem answering that. It would be really easy for me to say Paladura Canyon. Uh-huh. Paladura Canyon is amazing. It would be really easy to, for me to talk about the, the grasslands and the plains and the sunsets and all that other stuff. Recently, what I've become most passionate about is the 180 miles between Shamrock and Glen Rio. Okay. Route 66. In Route 66 here in Amarillo, we have such a valuable history of Route 66 that I just adore trying to document what's there. And the thing about it is, is a lot of that's disappearing really fast. And when that, people, was that too long ago? No, history? I think that's great. When people think about Route 66, they don't think about the landscape, though. They think about the buildings oh or gosh, the yeah. cities, the towns that you go through. <clears throat> oh, my gosh, yeah. A lot of times they think about the urban areas. But we, you know, one of the things that I think is so magical about Route 66, particularly to foreigners, is you're driving through this landscape that's endless. Right. You know, and so the landscape between Glen Rio and Shamrock is just amazing. And I'm trying to document as much of that as I possibly can. Okay. And speaking of landmarks on Route 66, I'm going to ask you this question. I don't know the answer, but when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? December 5th. And it, it, actually, it was a crazy story. All right. Um, so I go out there. One of the things I love about taking pictures at Cadillac Ranch is I love to take nighttime pictures. I love to do those time lapses where I can get the star trails. Right. So star trails are one photograph where I take about four hours and I collapse the movement of the stars. And so it's this surrealistic because you see the arc of the stars. Right. You know, it's really kind of a different photograph. And then when you add in the graffiti and I do a little bit of light painting, it's a really kind of a unique photograph. So I got there January the 5th and uh, I'm sitting out there near the Cadillacs and it's like 20 degrees or something like that. I'm all bundled up and this police officer comes up to me or a sheriff officer comes up to me and he asked me if I've seen this fellow walking around or whatever. And I'm like, it's just me. And he's like, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm taking pictures. And he goes like, what are you taking pictures at night for? And so I had to explain who I was. I'll be here for the next four hours. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just babysitting my camera. Well, the next thing I know, there's another sheriff behind the Cadillacs, flashlights going all over the oh, place and man. stuff like that. And actually it ended up being a really cool time okay. lapse because I mean, there's anyway, and then all of a sudden the, the, there's helicopters all over the place. So I've got these like circles in the sky of these helicopters doing donuts and i have no clue what they were looking for obviously they were looking for somebody somebody's out there, out there on foot yeah and uh, so it's one of the most interesting time lapses that i've ever done because you've got helicopters doing donuts in the sky and you've got police walking around the cadillacs and, so, and i still don't know what ever happened but it was hmm. just kind of crazy me sitting there and you know I, they didn't seem to indicate that i was in any danger or anything yeah. so i just kept taking pictures well you know a, a lot can happen in four hours and yeah going to pick up all of that so. yeah and so it's really inter- the most interesting part is why Watching these helicopters, you know, yeah. circle around the sky. Hmm. I've taken dozens of pictures of Cadillac Ranch at night, and that was the most activity I've ever really? seen. Really? Yeah. And it was that like after midnight? I mean, do you have to like really carve out a time when it's going to yeah, be? Yeah. Uh, you know, if I'm really doing those kinds of time, the, the stars, I really try to wait until the traffic on the highways died down. So I'm usually out there about like one o'clock on. Okay. You know, after midnight. What does this area have too much of? It has too much smell of feedlots. Okay. I doubt anyone but a feedlot owner would argue with you on that one. (laughs) My friend says that's the smell of money, and I'm like, yeah, but it ain't my money. That's right. That's right. Well, I'll leave it at that. I think uh, that's that's not going to be um, controversial. Controversial in in any way. What does this area not have enough of? Rain. 
Okay. You know, I think two years ago I went and I photographed after the wild, after the grass fires. Right. And it is terrifying. If you're a rancher around here, all of a sudden I have a great respect for ranchers. You know, the, the lack of moisture here is a real issue. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you can see it. I mean, yeah. you'll, if, if you're out there in the landscape, I mean, it's clear when yeah. it's been one of those seasons. Yeah. It, it's really crazy. What's your favorite local coffee shop? The 806. All right. I thought that might be the answer, but I wanted to ask it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's really kind of cool is we have a lot of coffee shops that mm-hmm. have popped up, and they're really kind of fun to go you know, explore and stuff like that. But the 806 is still one of my favorites. And the conversation I've had with a lot of people is that you know every coffee shop has its own sort of personality. Mm-hmm. you know. And the 806, definitely, it's, it's one of those unique personalities yeah. that people go for the environment as much as they go for the coffee or for the food. I mean, it's, you know what I love about the 806 honestly is I never knew who I'm going to meet there. Yeah. I mean, you may meet somebody from Germany. You may meet a local guy from the college learning art. You know, I mean, it's just this really wonderful eclectic group of people. All right. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? We are the friendliest big little town I've ever lived in. Okay. Is that enough of a description that you think people get? And understanding? I don't know. You know, we're at about 200,000. Am I right? Yeah. Somewhere around there. And um, it's really crazy. It's like everywhere I go, I know somebody. Yeah. And it it really does feel like towns that are way smaller in population where you know everybody. But we're really huge. And so, and the other thing I love about Amarillo is everybody's so friendly. I mean, standing in the grocery line, having no clue who the guy behind me is, and we'll have a conversation about whatever. You know, I mean, people here have those small town values of friendliness and stuff like that. And it's really weird how tight the community is. I mean, you know, it's crazy how many people that you know. Beyond having your work in in local places and offices and those things, I mean, do you have a lot of clients outside this area who want you know, that landscape and know that it's a landscape attached to Amarillo? Um, Oddly enough, uh, I'm in, if, you know, I look at the demographics on my website, I've sold to like 41 states, but I have sold all over the world. Mm -hmm. The largest populations that have bought that are in Germany, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. Okay. And so I kind of have friended some of those people because I'm like, why do you want my stuff in Germany? And oddly, there's a real fascination with the Old West. And so they love pictures of Palladar Canyon. They love pictures of the plains. They love the pictures of the horses. Horses are, uh, I love taking pictures of horses. Okay. What's the most underrated aspect of life in Amarillo? The art scene. Okay. You know, it's crazy. Um, We have a rich, vibrant art scene and we have some amazing, we have a pedigree of arts that go back to George O'Keefe. Absolutely. That, that people don't really even realize. And there's artists like Dord Fritch. And I mean, I mean, we really have this enormous, wonderful pedigree of art. And the art scene here is really vibrant and it's growing. Outside of Amarillo, they don't even know it exists. Mm-hmm. You know, they drive through Amarillo going to Santa Fe, but they could stop here and buy some of the most amazing art that you could see in Santa Fe. Yeah, that's true. And, and a lot of local people don't even realize how rich the artist or, or the art scene is here in town. Yeah. Not necessarily the artists who are rich, though. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if only more people would stop here, we could exactly. make that happen. Yeah. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? Sixth Street, obviously. Yeah. And actually, really and truly, Route 66. So, you know, that's not just 6th Street. That starts in uh, the Amarillo Boulevard, mm-hmm. goes down Amarillo Boulevard, goes downtown, and then goes all the way back out to outside of Amarillo. But 6th Street has a really special place in my heart. Maybe because I've got a gallery on 6th Street. Yeah. I, I know that with your gallery there, I mean, tell me about the people who are actually driving down 6th Street, maybe the, the tourists. <laughs> I mean, do, do they stop and, and see your gallery? Oh, it's crazy. We opened up December 5th, and right now we have, we've got a map where we ask people 
uh, you know, pin mm-hmm. where they're from. I mean, it's a real common thing on Route 66. And uh, as of yesterday, I counted there are 14 countries okay. represented on that map since December Just 5th. Just a few months, yeah. Yeah. Um, we really didn't expect to be very busy. In fact, really the reason that that gallery is open right now is because my uh, June uh, is real tired of me working off of the coffee table at our house looking like an art warehouse. Um, so we didn't really expect to do business and we get stuff every day. I'm, mm. I've been so pleasantly surprised at the number of tourists who are traveling route 66, even in the wintertime. All right. Well, Jim, that concludes the eight straight questions. Uh, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience related to this area? I'd like to talk about one of your past guests. Okay. Phyllis Nickham. Sure. Who owns Los, Credo, Los Cedros Ranch. Right. Did I say Los that right? Cedros Ranch, Cowboys and Cowgirls in the West. Yeah. Um, a lot of the horses that I take photographs of are out at her place. All right. You can get a really genuine experience of the Old West, riding the horses, seeing Powder Canyon, you know, that kind of thing. And her ranch is just gorgeous. Yeah, it's talk right about there. a photogenic landscape. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, it's an it's crazy the number of people that don't even know it's there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Jim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate, hey, I appreciate it. it. Appreciate you, Jason. Appreciate your podcast, man. It's wonderful. And that concludes the show. First, thanks to Jim for the interview. You can learn more about him and his work at jimlivingstonart.com and at iamroute66.com. That's RT66. Thanks to Eddie Sauer and Shimon Dental for sponsoring this episode. Angelina Marie edits this podcast and is the visionary leader behind the Amarillo Women's Collaborative. Yes, it's related to the podcast. Well, only in insofar as Angelina is related to the podcast, but that's significant. Sign up for the email newsletter at bit.ly slash hey newsletter. Hey Amarillo is made possible every week thanks to the financial support of my executive producers, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Wes Reeves, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Chriselda, Patrick Burns, and Josh Wood. Put your name on that list or support the show or become a sponsor at patreon.com slash heyamarillo. That's Patreon with an E. This has been episode 127, lots of stuff going on. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.